Good morning, and welcome to the 8th edition of the PALCAST, the podcast from the White Coat Underground. I'm your host, Peter Lipson, an internist in the Midwestern United States, and a blogger at scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground. My regular listeners will notice a distinctly different audio environment today. That's because today is the road edition. Today we are on the road and on location at my local coffee shop. You see, with all the freezing and the snow this winter, we ended up with a ice damming problem, which caused the complete destruction of our kitchen and family room. Construction has finally begun on the repairs, which means I don't have a coffee pot at the moment. Therefore, I am palcasting from the local cafe. In the background, you will hear the sounds of steaming milk and of espresso being pounded out. Thank you in advance for your understanding. Speaking of coffee, coffee was once a subversive beverage. It was a beverage that was enjoyed in coffee houses around London, often by those who are out of political favor. Uh, I'm sure that there was a certain pleasure taken in enjoying a beverage and a location and company that seemed somehow clever and secret. We all know it's fun to belong to a club, especially an exclusive club. It's fun to think that you might have access to people and to knowledge that other people do not. Now, coffee is still wonderful, but it's no longer an alternative beverage. It's become the standard. It no longer requires some special access in order to get good coffee. Anyone can brew it at home. Anyone can buy it just about anywhere. You don't have to go to a special coffee shop in a special part of town just to find your morning cup of joe. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that alternative medicine shares a lot of these properties and has a similar story arc. Many, many years ago, we didn't know that much about human biology and about human medicine, and much of the healing and dying was done at home. A close friend or relative would come by to apply salves, to give tinctures, or perhaps even a local doctor would stop by to do the same, with probably the same effect. Everyone was intimately involved with the healing, or lack thereof. Now, as we have learned about human biology and human medicine, medicine has become very specialized. So specialized, in fact, that we go to super subspecialists for each particular body part. If you have a heart rhythm disturbance, it's not enough to see a cardiologist. You have to see one that already has a specialty in heart rhythm disturbances. If you have a mass on your thyroid gland, it's not enough to go to a general surgeon. One goes to a surgeon who specializes in removing thyroid glands or similar surgeries. Uh, Pardon me, but Jesus, it's loud in here. Anyway, medicine has been removed from the home and moved to the temple, if you will, of doctor's offices, of the hospital, of the university medical center. This has perhaps caused many people to feel alienated from their health care. It's often provided by strangers in a strange and uncomfortable environment. This, of course, does not mean that it is less effective, but for some people, this alienation is a significant factor. Enter 
alternative medicine, a healing, in quotes, that anybody can do from the comfort of their own home. Not only that, but there's something somewhat subversive about it, as real medicine has become part of the dominant culture, alternative medicine can be seen as especially cool. While you are bringing healing back into your home, you are at the same time becoming part of an exclusive little club, which is available to those who are willing to open their minds and hearts to this clever alternative. So, while the high priests of the dominant medical culture are at their big hospitals and universities practicing real medicine, you can be at home or at a yoga studio or at an acupuncturist sharing in the clever subversive knowledge of something that is other. Now if this were a drink, there really wouldn't be a problem with this. But we're actually talking about life and death here. You see, a drink is a matter of personal preference. You don't choose a drink based on the likelihood that it will be the drink most likely statistically to please the drinker. Medicine, however, is based on science. It's based on biology. It's based on observable and measurable forces. Medicine isn't about so much desire and personal preference. It's about what works and what doesn't work. Those of us who practice real science-based medicine are losing the battle here. People are feeling alienated and they are turning to alternative practices in order to feel more involved, more interesting, more interested. Now, part of the problem is, in real medicine, we don't have the luxury of providing cool, of providing services that we have just because somebody wants it. There is no funding to provide a, quote, healing environment, whatever that may mean, and that's really part of the problem. When people complain that there wasn't a healing environment, what does that mean? Well, it means that they were uncomfortable. But honestly, if we were to find that a, quote, healing environment were to statistically significantly add to the healing process, we would find a way to provide it. But it doesn't. And what is a healing environment? One person's incense is another person's allergens. You can't have a separate doctor's office for every individual. What we study in medicine is what works in larger populations, not uh, on an individual level. That is both the strength and the weakness of real medicine. The strength is we can study thousands and thousands of people, and that tells us something about how a treatment is likely to work on an individual, but it doesn't precisely tell us what will happen with that individual. Understandably, people would prefer if we could tell them exactly what would be best for them as an individual, but we can't. One of the crimes, if you will, of the alternative medicine movement is that they do make this promise. They promise to individualize treatments, whether it's bioidentical hormones or a homeopathic remedy. They make the claim that they can provide a treatment which is designed to suit an individual's biology. The problem is this doesn't correspond to reality. Treatments are designed and tested on populations. Populations made up of individuals 
but it's very difficult to make a conclusion from the study of a single individual. There is no parameter you can measure in an individual to develop a, quote, bioidentical hormone regimen, unquote. After all, what would one measure? The levels of various hormones change from minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, week to week. How do we know what is normal and what is abnormal? Well, the only way to know this is to study thousands and thousands of people and to put together the biochemical and clinical knowledge of these large groups of people. Let me give you a small example. And stick with me here because this gets a little bit crazy. In general, when we determine what is normal or abnormal on a lab test, there is a certain arbitrariness to it. We may measure thousands and thousands of people's levels of, say, ALT, one of the liver enzymes, and draw a curve of where this sample of people fall for levels of ALT. We then somewhat arbitrarily define the middle 95% of these values to be normal. The highest and lowest 2.5% we somewhat arbitrarily designate as abnormal. What this tells us is that most people who are above or below that 95% are going to be in some way abnormal, but a small but measurable percentage of people who have an abnormal test result will still be normal. If we are to look at all of the people on the original curve, let's say that rather than a random population, we took people who were known to be healthy. Let's say 95% of these people had an ALT value of between 20 and 30. Any of these healthy people who are above or below that are defined as abnormal despite the fact that they are healthy because we need to set normal somewhere. Now, picture this. Let's say I order a typical comprehensive metabolic panel. It's a blood test with about 20 different measurable blood parameters on it. Each one of those parameters has maybe depending on how you calculate it, a 5% chance of reading abnormal despite the fact that the person is healthy. This tells me a couple of things. One, it tells me not to order unnecessary labs. And two, to combine my lab findings with my clinical findings and perhaps to repeat the test. Now, let's imagine that I'm sitting in some alternative clinic somewhere and I've decided that I'm going to develop an individualized program for someone. I'm going to somehow measure their hormone levels and develop, quote, bioidentical hormones for them. Let's say that I measure these levels and they're a little high or a little low. What does it mean? Does it mean that this person is normal and that they just happen to fall outside of the usual norm because of a personal quirk? Does it mean that it's pathologic? Does it mean that it was just different on that day? How do I know that the test is truly abnormal? Second, how do I know how much hormone to give them? Do I just give them some till the lab test reaches some arbitrary level that I feel is somehow better? There's nothing bioidentical about that. That's just voodoo. When we practice real medicine, we look at data from large populations. We base treatments on how larger groups of people responded, and then we generalize to the specific person in front of us. That isn't to say the individual doesn't matter. 
For example, let's say I'm treating someone who has coronary artery disease with a statin medication. I know from clinical trials that this practice will lower the risk of having a second heart attack. I also know that lowering their LDL cholesterol to a particular level is more likely to lower this risk. And that if I use a statin medication to lower the LDL cholesterol to this level, I will significantly reduce a patient's risk of having another heart attack. So let's say Mr. Jones comes into my office. He had a heart attack a year ago, but somehow never got started on his uh, lipid-lowering medication. So I go ahead and start him after I note that his cholesterol level is still rather high. And he comes back to me about a month later telling me that he has muscle aches all over his body. Well, this is a pretty typical description of a rare but well-described side effect of statin medications. This is where you have to get a little bit creative. I may have to pick a new medication that may not have the same efficacy but may get us part of the way there. Or I may have to stop lipid-lowering medications completely. So our knowledge comes from studies of large groups of people, but our practice is on individuals and every doctor recognizes this. It is one of the great lies of alternative medicine that it is somehow more personalized and more individualized than real medicine. Remember that the medical profession as a whole recognizes that the power we have and the intimacy we have with other people requires an enhanced level of responsibility toward these people. We have ethical principles that require us to do the best for our patients, that require us not to deceive them, that require us to avoid doing them harm. We are bound by our ethical principles to take the best knowledge we know of in medicine and in science and apply that to each individual patient according to their need. These ethical principles hold us to a very high standard and I would venture to say that most physicians think about these things either implicitly or explicitly many times a day with each patient sitting in front of them. I wonder what the alternative medicine community does about this whole ethics issue. Let's say I was a homeopath, God forbid, and a patient came to me with some ailment or another and I made up one of the usual homeopathic potions for it. Let's also pretend that I'm a true believer. What does that mean? I've done what I think is correct for the patient. I've treated them to the best of my knowledge and ability. Have I done anything wrong? Well, that's debatable. Motive is, of course, relevant. If I feel I'm doing good for someone, that does make a difference in my overall ethical profile. However, doing good for someone does not just mean feeling good about it yourself because you think you are fulfilling some duty. It also means providing some actual good for somebody. If there is a medical standard of care for this condition based on reality and science, and you provide something different based on your own beliefs, then what you've done is wrong, no matter what your motivations, because you have failed to do something good for the patient. Before we knew how the human body really worked, before we knew how the universe worked, we could make things up. We can make up pretty stories about the stars or about the humors, but we no longer have that luxury, that luxury of making things up, of simply doing what sounds nice. Now that we have great knowledge, we have great responsibility. 
That, of course, implies specialization and exclusivity. When medicine is based on science, not everyone can practice medicine. And to try to do so, being completely ignorant of how the human body works and how modern medicine works, is unethical. It is untenable. It is, clearly and simply, wrong. It violates the basic dignity of the human beings who are seeking help by deceiving them, by denying them access to true help. People aren't happy with this state of affairs, or at least some people aren't. Nobody likes exclusivity, unless, of course, they're a member of the exclusive class. But just like the fact that not everyone can be an artist, and not everyone can be a physicist, not everyone can be a healer. There is no immeasurable mysterious energy that some non-physician has access to. <laughs> or for that matter, that any physician has access to. The human body is made of matter and easily accessible to study. Now when I say easily, I mean it's accessible by the means of doing science. That doesn't mean doing science is easy. And I think some of the Altis recognize that doing science isn't easy and that they can't be a healer unless they are doing something more complicated than just any person could do which is one of the reasons I think they develop such complicated systems, for instance, homeopathy, where there exists this vast storage of made-up knowledge about different substances and the way things work and the memory of water. It's a very complicated system. It just happens to not have anything to do with reality. Fake medicine is a fundamentally immoral act, and it makes me cry just a little. And, I might point out, almost as important, bad coffee makes me cry just a little. Which is why, despite the noise, I don't mind broadcasting to you today from the local coffee shop. So with that, we're going to have to call it quits for the day. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you again later. Remember to visit me at the White Coat Underground at scienceblogs.com slash whitecoatunderground.